Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Questions in Genesis, our current series on Chris's courses. These are the classes that I've been teaching at the Westlink Church of Christ. So, sorry we missed last week. I uh, was all ready to teach and then found out that someone I had been close to had uh, had come down with COVID, and so I had to not teach that night last Wednesday, and everything was fine. Took a test the next morning, but that's why we missed a week. So, sorry about that. If you've gotten used to kind of going through all the ones I had just posted, uh, you had to wait a little bit longer, but hopefully it'll be worth the wait today as uh, we continue to look at uh, the, the part of Genesis where everything's getting worse. You know, last time we looked at chapters 4 and 5, and then 10 and 11, the way that, that sin has entered the story, and now everything's kind of spiraling out of control. And, you know, we saw there that God, when he was talking with Cain, said that, you know, you're not helpless against sin, that, you know, it's, it's crouching at your door and it wants you, but you can master it. And of course, Cain doesn't, and most others in the story don't do that either. Humans keep giving in, and so we're just seeing this progression of sin and violence. And so the, the center piece of that, the part that we skipped last time, is the flood story in chapters 6 to 9. So that's where we're going to focus today. We're going to see how much, you know, we're going to not really look at every detail, but, but cover as much as we can of that and see, you know, what's, what's the real, real point of that. Before we get into the actual flood story, there's one other little odd story that comes at the beginning of chapter 6 of Genesis. It says, When people began to multiply in the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair, and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of gods, sons of God, went into the daughters of humans, who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. This is definitely one of those stories where it's like, wait, there's, can you give me a little bit more here? What's going on with this? Uh, so there's been a lot of thought and speculation about what these or who these sons of God are that are uh, having children with human women. Uh, one interpretation is that these are angels, uh, fallen angels. Um, you know, angels really aren't mentioned much so far in the story. There was a cherubim back in chapter 3, keeping them out of the garden, but that's all that we've seen. But that is a little more common Jewish interpretation that comes along later. In fact, uh, the books in the New Testament of Jude and Second Peter are probably referring to this uh, in Second in Peter 2, 4. Uh, so this is an idea that eventually is kind of in the air, but at the time of Genesis, uh, it's hard to say that that's exactly what they thought. Uh, another interpretation is these sons of God. Son of God is actually a royal title. That's what kings would call themselves. And so this could be referring to uh, kings coming along, taking more and more power, taking more and more wives. That definitely fits. I think that fits a little better with the story of Genesis uh, it, it, when, and when God's response is, you know, he seems to be getting tired of humanity, it would make a little more sense if it were something that humans were doing. But that's hard to say. And again, later interpretation leans more on the side of, of these being some sort of divine beings. Whatever it is, whoever these, these sons of God are that are producing the Nephilim, uh, the point is God's getting more tired with humanity. And there's this limiting of the lifespan. It's still exaggerated but it's closer to normal, or that could be the length of time until the flood. Uh, but 
kind of the, the bigger picture and what we're going to see with the flood story is that God is not going to let humanity destroy creation forever. Uh, creation's not just about us. You know, we tend to think of it that way, but, but it's not. And what we do affects the earth. It affects the other creatures on earth. It's just as true today, maybe even more so than it was then. And God cares about all of it. And so that leads us into the flood story. So the first thing I would say about the flood is that this is not a kid's story. You know, I have young children and I have multiple little kids books with Noah and the ark. And I know it's because it's got the animals and the boat and it, it seems like a fun story. It's fun to illustrate. But uh, this is not a story for kids, right? It's violent. It's depressing. It's uh, kind of scary if you think about it. And for adults, you know, you listening, if this story doesn't make you a little uncomfortable when you start thinking about some of the ideas in it, maybe you need to give it a little more thought. Now, uh, part of that, though, how we interpret it comes down to how we think of it working. You know, and we see that in some of the details, the way that this story is told. For one thing, very broad characterization. Uh, Noah, you know, you would say our central character, he doesn't speak until after the flood. Uh, in chapter 9, when he's interacting with his, his kids, uh, you know, we've seen plenty of you know, veggie tales or, or whatever it is that talk about, you see God, Noah interacting with other people or with his family. That doesn't actually happen in Genesis. He's just kind of a blank slate. He's described as good, and he does what God asks. Uh, well, until he doesn't after the flood, but we'll get to that next time. But, you know, he just he's more representative of a good person than being an actual character in the story. And along with that, this broad characterization, the rest of humanity is also really just lumped together. They're not seen as real people, but as a general problem. And I think that's important because that tells us a little bit about the genre of what we're seeing here and how we're meant to, to read this, you know, more as, as folklore instead of getting down into the details of every person. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the point is, as far as characterization, the only character that really matters is God. And so that's where we're going to focus, right? Again, the reason we're calling this series Questions in Genesis is we're trying to see what are the questions that this book is trying to ask, not are the questions that, that we could bring to it, the, the modern issues that we're trying to prove or solve, based on Genesis, but, but what is it trying to say? And most of the time, it's trying to say something about God. And so that's the kind of thing that we want to focus on. Now, another important fact coming, you know, kind of background to this is that flood stories are common to almost every ancient Middle Eastern culture. Uh, and most of them, uh, a lot of them are probably older than the book of Genesis, the account here. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not, I don't bring that up to say that, you know, Genesis is dependent on those stories, but more the idea that this, this gigantic flood is just an idea that was significant in the cultural memory of ancient Near Eastern people. Everyone just had this idea that at one point this had happened. Uh, one of the uh, good examples of this, one of these accounts, is something called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which actually uh, that story continues on from the Enuma Elish creation account that we looked at at the very beginning. Uh, and there are similar details in there of uh, the person after offering a sacrifice after the flood, of sending a raven to find out if the flood's still around. Uh, and so, really, I think there's this ancient question that they're thinking about of, okay, if there was this giant flood, why would the gods, or for the Hebrews, why would God, Yahweh, wipe out humanity? 
Uh, and what would that say about God's character, about that God's priorities? Because again, Genesis is addressing their context, not ours. And so that's where we got to start. So this question of, well, why would the gods do this? Uh, you can see this answered in another account, the Atrahasis epic. There in that account, the gods wipe out humans because humans are really noisy and the gods can't get any sleep. And the only reason that humanity survives is because one guy builds a boat and he escapes. The gods notice. So again, the, the gods, kind of like we saw in the other creation account, pretty fickle, really just very human motivations uh, and not in a good way. Uh, and so you can see, again, Genesis as a response to that, of presenting a, a better picture. But we do have to ask, what is the Lord's motivation through this? And also, how is God affected through that this story? So let's see some of that as we look. Uh, I'll read chapter 6, 5 through 8, and then 11 to 12. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. So what we're seeing here in the way God is described is what we've seen a few times before, that this is an ancient depiction of God. You know, as you're reading through this, God seems to constantly be surprised by evil or surprised by the violence of humanity. Uh, you saw that back in chapter 2 as well in, in a different way where you know, God creates the human and then he realizes, oh, it's not good for the human to be alone. And so God starts forming animals as you know, a possible partner and none of them work. And it's not until God creates another human that uh, it solves that problem. And so it's the same thing here. God didn't expect that humanity would, would be this bad, would go this wrong. Um, and so there's kind of this surprise. Uh, God is sorry. And so what we're seeing here is not the idea of God knowing all things, right? Omniscience, is that's a Greek philosophical idea. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's not really the viewpoint of Genesis at this point. And so, you know, your mileage may vary on how you think about this depiction of God, whether this seems godly or this seems uh, actually more comforting. You know, how do you think about the idea of God as a, as a problem solver? Um, in some ways, that, that seems like God should be better than that to some people. Uh, but I think there's, there's a positive side to this. Uh, I think it is a, a great depiction of God. And again, from an ancient point of view that God is working with us. Uh, God knows what is knowable, and we could spend a lot more time talking about this. There's an idea called open theism that says uh, God knows everything that's knowable, but the future is not actually knowable. Um, you know, God has, uh, I would say, a, a bigger destiny for us uh, where everything is, is meant to go, and we are going to achieve that destiny. But how we get there, uh, that's, that's still a little up in the air, exactly. You know, it depends how you think about free will. If we are truly free, if God truly is trying to work with us, then God's going to change some of the specifics of the plans depending on what we do. And we can still trust that God's ultimate aims are going to be achieved. Um, but 
God is working with us. Now, if you're someone who believes in predestination, a story like this is actually kind of hard. You have to figure out what you do with God being sorry and grieved. Um, Because some do take the view that, well, everything that happens is exactly what God planned out. But that, to me, becomes pretty problematic because you're saying, well, God knew that people were going to mess everything up, and he still went ahead with it anyway, and then he punishes them punishes them for doing what he knows they're going to do. Uh, that, that to me, is a much more troubling picture, and that's way less godly to me, <laughs> that God uh, kind of creates us knowing we're going to mess up and then gets mad at us for doing what he knows we're going to do. So instead, let's read this story as it comes to us and see the way that God is working with humanity, trying to make things right. And some of that is also comes with how God is, is looking at us here, looking at humanity, looking at the earth, because it says that God is grieved. It doesn't say God's angry and mad. God doesn't destroy everything just because he loses his temper. He's sorry. And, you know, you think about with your parents, which was worse, when they were angry at you or when they were just disappointed? Uh, I know I was more the second. That would affect me more. And so we're seeing God, in a sense, suffering from because of his children. Um, and, and again, some ideas about God say God is beyond suffering, and that's, that's not something God should experience. But that's what love does, right? If you love someone, you're probably going to be hurt by them. Um, by, by creating humanity, God made himself vulnerable to the ways that we would not do what God wants. And yet, because God is love, God still creates anyway, even knowing that there's going to be grief that comes with that. And so God regrets or even God repents, which is another way of saying God changes his mind about this, uh, about us in some sense. Uh, And the reason for this, the way Genesis explains it here in in verse 5, is that there's this evil inclination of our heart. Uh, And later the specific problem in verse 11 is is the violence that is so prevalent in, in our lives and what we do. And, you know, I think you can read this a little bit as hyperbole, right? Is it really true that uh, every inclination of our thoughts and our hearts is only evil continually? Well, uh, maybe. I don't know. The last few years have been kind of rough. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's maybe hyperbole, but saying that, you know, it, it's trying to address this question, why do people keep doing things that hurt others? Why do we keep doing the wrong thing? Why are we so prone to violence? Um. Genesis doesn't necessarily explain this as well as we might think. Again, you can jump ahead to Romans and what Paul says about Adam, and other later theologians like Augustine, Augustine, uh, will come up with the idea of original sin as something that's inborn in us because of Adam's sin. Genesis isn't saying any of that. Uh, and so it's, it is something in our hearts, and Genesis is uh, trying to figure out why that is. But there's this issue here, though, of if the problem with humanity is it's, it's a heart problem, a heart issue, is a creation-wide flood really going to solve that? Ultimately, as you go through the whole narrative of Scripture, God says through the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel that what humanity needs is a new heart. And that's what we believe comes through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. So what is God doing here? As God looks and is sorry at how evil humanity has become, is God giving up on creation? Well, in some ways it's an end, but it's also a new beginning that comes through Noah. So I'm not going to read through the rest of uh, chapters 6 through 8. I'll just kind of hit some of the highlights here. 
Uh, one thing, you know, God tells Noah to build an ark, and that word there that's used is not actually the word for a boat, it's the word for a box. It's the same word used for the Ark of the Covenant. And so I know, you know again, look at all the children's books, and you'll see the Ark looks like a, a boat, and they all draw it the same way for some reason, I'm not sure. Uh, but it's it's just a box, right? It doesn't need to be that seaworthy, it's just got to float, and it's, it's more the idea of it's just kind of containing all of you know the animals and the people, uh, rather than being a boat, a ship. Now, we also get in chapter 6, verse 18, the first mention of a covenant in Scripture. This becomes very important through the story of, of Genesis with uh, multiple covenants that God makes with uh, here with Noah and then later with Abraham and then I guess into Exodus with, with Israel as a whole. And we'll talk about it more when we get to the one that God makes, but it's, it's this idea of partnership. But here, even though it's a partnership, it's very it's one-sided. God is saying, I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to do this for you. But we're seeing here that even before the flood comes, God is thinking towards future blessing. So it's not just an end. And yet, in another way, it is. Now, at the beginning, my the very first week, uh, I encourage us to picture the way that Genesis 1 is describe, describing creation. Right? It's this ancient cosmology. It's not the way that we understand creation looking or working. Uh, but there you have you know, the waters below, and the land is gathered underneath. And then you have waters above, and there's a, a firmament or really a bowl that's in the sky separating the two waters. And so what happens in the flood is an undoing of that. So you get to chapter 7, around verse 11, it talks about the, the windows up in, the, in this firmament, up in the sky, are opened up. And so that water comes back down, and the, the waters underneath start coming out. So it's this idea of God letting the earth return back to the chaotic, watery state that it had in the very beginning, right, where it's formless and void in Genesis 1-2. So it's, it's just going back to that. Everything that God had done, God kind of undoes it by letting the waters come back. Water is a sign of chaos through much of, of Scripture. And so it says that all flesh dies. Animals are mentioned first there in chapter 7. They're kind of collateral damage because of, of our violence. And then, again, people, uh, all flesh, are, are gone, um, but it describes people in a very impersonal way. We're not, I don't think when we read this, we're not meant to think about and consider the individual people, to think about children that die in this, right? Taking it literally like that actually hurts the narrative and, I think, hurts God's character. And so that's, that's not the point of this, this story. Again, this is important how we read this and recognize the genre of what it's trying to do and what it's saying about God. If you linger on those details, uh, I think you're kind of missing the point of the story. And so the change comes that after everything is flooded and everything is dead except for uh, the ones in the ark, the animals and, and Noah, God remembers. Right? This is in chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And when we hear that word, it's more like, oh, I, for, I forgot I left the water on. I better go get that, right? That's what remember means to us. But in, in the Hebrew mindset, the way this word is used, it's, it's something bigger than that. It's not just mental, like, thinking about it again. It's a decision to act. We see this also in the book of Exodus, the very beginning. God remembers his people, and that is kind of the change, the starting point of God acting to set them free. And so here, it's, it's similar where God... Once God remembers, God is resolving to act differently towards humanity. 
And so God sends a divine wind, or you could say a divine spirit, same word. Once again, just as we saw in chapter one, uh, this divine, this wind or spirit from God makes way for creation again. And so that ancient cosmology, it returns to its previous state. The waters go back above, the flood, you know, the, the windows are shut, and the go, water goes back down below. Uh, and so it does return to how God made it in the beginning. And so again, remember, this is their ancient understanding of creation, not the way that we understand it to be scientifically. That shouldn't trip us up uh, because that's not the kind of question that Genesis is trying to answer. And so Noah and, and the ark and his family and everyone, uh, they're kind of waiting for all the waters to recede. They end up on the mountain and, and Noah sends out the, the birds. And, you know, this is probably a, a modern uh, interpretation coming into it, uh, that Noah sends out a dove and it returns with an olive leaf, an olive branch. I think that's interesting that both of those things are symbols of peace. Uh, so whether that's intended or not, I don't know if they would have thought of those in, those symbols in that way back then. But it's, it is pointing towards the peace that's coming between God and humanity, between humanity and the earth. After all, this peace is what God is, is truly after. So now I want to pick up in uh, chapter 8, verse 20, and we'll go into chapter 9 and see some about Noah's sacrifice and God's promise. So this is chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And I always, I feel bad for those birds that survived on the ark for all that time and they get out and they get sacrificed. Anyway, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth, on every bird of the air and everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your own lifeblood I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal I will require it, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another. I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God created humankind. So we see here, you know, with this sacrifice, again, a primitive view of God, that God enjoys the smell of it. You know, that's the, consistent with how we've seen God depicted. God walks in the garden. God uses his hands to, to form creation. And so God smells the sacrifice. That is probably how ancient people thought about God. And we even see this, this image, this idea, a metaphor, continue through Scripture, where in the New Testament, like in Revelation 5 or 2 Corinthians 2, our, our prayers or our good deeds are an aroma that go up to God. And so you can continue to use these metaphors, but recognize them as metaphors. And so after this, God resolves never to destroy earth or creatures again. Even though, and I think this is really important, even though God acknowledges that our hearts have not changed, right? What he says in 821 is basically what, the same as what he says before about the inclination of the human heart. You know, so think about it, you know, to use other metaphors, if you had a tree in your yard that was somehow rotten, 
cutting off branches is not going to solve the problem. If the problem is down in the trunk or it's down in the roots, right? You have to address the root problem. Or if you have a virus on your computer, if you just start deleting some of your files, that's not going to fix it. You're going to, if it's really bad, you're going to have to reinstall, you know, the operating system and take it back down all the way to the, the bottom of it. And so it's, it's like God knows or realizes in a sense that, okay, this is, this is not the way to solve this issue. Uh, and so he restates the original calling to humanity, right? Like, okay, well, let's just, let's just keep trying with this. Be fruitful, fill the earth, take charge of the animals, Although we see that the relationship between uh, animals and humanity is now more distorted. God originally wanted people to be vegetarians. He gave them the, the fruit of the trees and, and plants, and that was it. But now God permits them to eat meat, which you know, I assume they were definitely doing during this time that everything was very violent. But now God is kind of saying, all right, well, you can do this as well. You can have the animals, but you have to respect their, their life, their lifeblood. Right. This part of the way they thought is that the blood carried life somehow. And so you don't eat the blood from these animals. Um, you can have a steak, but make sure you slaughter it in a, in a humane way, in a respectful way. Um, so it's, yes, humanity still has you know this high place, but we can't just use creation however we want. We have to be respectful of even the life that we take in order so that we can live. But uh, individual retribution for humans is, is also part of this. If you shed another person's blood, then that's going to come back on you as well. It's a little bit of the eye for an eye sort of idea. Uh, but it is ultimately about respecting human life, which gets back to restating the idea of the image of God in 9.6. After everything that's happened, after what God has realized about the state of humanity and the inclination of our hearts, God says we're still made in his image. There is no way, no sense in which that is gone or broken or distorted. It's still there. And that's the, the reason for how we should treat one another with respect, respecting life. Uh, but who we are doesn't change deep down just because of this. And, and I think that's, that's good news. And so, again, going back to what we talked about earlier about this ancient, more ancient depiction of God, what has God learned through this? Right? That tends to not be the way we, we think about it, but uh, maybe this is more of these ancient people processing how they understand God. Um, that, they, that God recognizes that destruction, wiping people out, doesn't actually solve the problem. You know, that's a mindset that it's going to come up over and over throughout Scripture, and we, continue, we have to wrestle with it because really they were wrestling with it. And, and we still do today, right? How many times do we think, you know, if these sort of people were just gone, then everything would be fine? Well, I think the flood story should show us here, even at the beginning, that, that approach to dealing with evil doesn't work. We need something better. And so you can think of the rest of Scripture as God trying to, to solve that issue. You know, the next big shift is going to be towards focusing on, on Israel with the call of Abraham. And so that's still God trying to address this issue and, and bless the whole earth through him. And so part of that also is God making covenants. So we get that uh, continued, you know, we get more detail on that here in chapter 9, starting in verse 8. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the 
birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So again, the covenant is, it's, it's not just like a contract. It's, it's much more relational. Marriage is probably the best modern example. Uh, marriage is never referred to as a covenant in Scripture, but I think that that is kind of connect with the idea here. Of you're making an agreement, but it's it's not just these simple terms that can be broken if if you step out of line. It's only broken if both top parties decide you know this this doesn't work anymore. And though even though it is relational in this case, it's one-sided. God is saying, no matter what humanity does, I'm not going to break my side of this. And it's not just with humanity; it's it's with every living creature because again, they're part of this story. They were affected by what we do. And God is, is concerned about that. Now, God, at least here, says, I won't destroy again with a flood. Now, you could. there's some debate over, well, is that saying, well, God can destroy everything some other way. He just can't do it with water again. Or is this saying something deeper about how God has changed in relationship with creation? Uh, now, if you go back to chapter 8, that is what he says, that there's no more destruction in general. And yet you can also find images of, you know, like fire at the end. Second Peter 3 talks about that. I don't think that's functioning in the same way, but there are some similarities because Second Peter actually mentions the flood before that. Um, so, but uh, to me, I think it's important that we read this more as how God has resolved to interact with, with the earth now, that acknowledging destroying everything doesn't work, whether it's a flood or fire or tornadoes or something else, that's not actually going to solve the real problem. Uh, and so God is resolving to interact with us differently and work against evil in a different way. And God symbolizes that by hanging up his bow, right? A rainbow we've, we've all seen, always, always beautiful. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, not too long ago, someone pointed out that when it says a bow, it means like a bow and arrow, right? Which you could get ancient people, they see a rainbow and it's got that curve just like a bow does. That's what they think, right? So a rainbow is really like God's weapon, but God is hanging it up, putting it on the wall saying, I'm not using this anymore. Which again, to me is a deeper sign of the way that God is going to interact with humanity, that God is not against us, God is for us. That's what Romans 8 says very emphatically. Uh, God is not against us. Our sins are, are making a lot of things terrible, and God is trying to resolve that. Uh, but we shouldn't look at the, the bad things that happen as God trying to punish us and make us feel bad. God is trying to make things right, and that's always what God is oriented towards. So next time, we'll, we'll wrap up with a little bit of uh, the story of Noah after the flood with his sons. Um, sneak preview of that is after everything that God does, the fresh start that God gives, humanity immediately messes it up. Right? The first thing Noah does is get drunk, and something weird happens with his sons. So it's just another reminder that 
you know, it, we're just going to keep making mistakes probably, and yet God is still going to be faithful. To me, that's good news because the number of times I've had a fresh start, I feel like, or I've committed, resolved to do better, and then it doesn't really work out that well, I can trust that God's still with me too, and God's still with you no matter what mistakes you continue to make. We don't have to live in fear that God is just going to you know, wipe us out somehow. We can trust that God is going to work with us. God does want us to have clean, new hearts and live in a better way. And God believes in us, even if it's going to be difficult. But as I said, God is for us. God is not against us. That's what we see by the end of the flood story. And that, as I said, is good news. We'll see you next time, everyone. Thanks for listening today.